We the people. We the people. We the people of the United States. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. To ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. In the summer of 1787, 55 men would gather in Philadelphia. They were tasked with fixing the government of the United States of America. Over the course of four months, they would debate, argue, refine and prepare the first document of its kind in the history of mankind, an attempt to prove that men can rule themselves by law. Over the next three years, the 13 United States would debate the ratification. This is the story of those men and of those times. It is a look at the ideas, the concepts, the debates, and the history of the Constitution of the United States. This is Constitution Thursday. On October 31st, 1787, the Philadelphia Freeman's Journal printed a letter from the western part of Pennsylvania, asking what had become of the copies of the Constitution which the Assembly had ordered to be printed and distributed throughout the state. The copies had never reached the back country, and suspicion naturally fell on the pro-Constitution Republicans who controlled the state government. Did they suppress, or at least, fail to facilitate? the distribution of those copies into parts of the state where they feared opposition to the Constitution was strongest? If the great body of the people remain ignorant of what the Constitution said, how could they know how to vote in selecting convention delegates? If the Constitution will bear the examination of the people who are to be bound thereby, why is such precipitancy being used? I keep saying it because it's true. History is strange. It will not give us what we want from it. If you read history and you find that it agrees with your world perspective 100%, then you've either misread it or you haven't read all of it. And when you start reading all of it and more of it, the more of it you read, the more you discover things that make you feel a little uncomfortable sometimes. Pennsylvania in 1788 was by far and away the most diverse state in the entire country. And when I say that, I mean it in every way imaginable. Culturally, nearly a third of the state of Pennsylvania in 1788 is German. They don't speak English. They are German immigrants who have settled in Pennsylvania. The state is philosophically diverse. There's the eastern merchant mercantile elite, the western farmers. There is a religious element and a diversity to this in the sense that you have a great deal of, uh, of course, Quaker influence in Pennsylvania, but you also have a great deal of Irish Protestant influence here, which is a little weird, different than we're used to thinking about. Normally we think about Ireland, we think about Catholicism, Roman Catholics, but in the case of Pennsylvania, it are, it is, it are, <laughs> it is the Irish Protestants who have come here is, as well. You have, of course, some diversity in the sense of, of, uh, of wealth. You have, it is really, there aren't really a lot of ways to describe how diverse it is. 
culturally, religiously, politically, but it is also the only state in the Union that managed to have the political minority, in this particular case, the anti-British, anti-Quaker uh, folks, seize power during the Revolutionary War. In fact, they rewrote the Constitution for Pennsylvania during in 1776, after the Declaration of Independence, to essentially disenfranchise anyone who would not take a loyalty oath to the United States of America. This was in the Pennsylvania State Constitution as of 1776. And of course, because of all this diversity, you had many people in the state who would not take that oath. The Quakers refused to because they were pacifists and they didn't want to get involved in a fight and the, and the likes of that. And George Washington uh, himself at some point got involved with the discussion about the Quakers of Pennsylvania and he, uh, he had sort of an ambivalent attitude towards it. Being a military man, he probably didn't understand their pacifism, but he also understood that they weren't helping the British either. And so in that vein, he tended to tolerate it more perhaps than the people even in, in Philadelphia and the rest of Pennsylvania did. There was this constitution and, and, and the laws were passed that required this loyalty oath. And these laws remained on the books even after the Revolutionary War. The Revolutionary War, of course, ends functionally in 1781, although technically in 1783. But it is not until 1786 that Pennsylvania manages to m remove these laws, this loyalty oath law, from its books and from its constitution. And consequently, as a result of that removal of that law, suddenly Pennsylvania is wide open politically again, and this small uh, Eastern elite, if you will, this anti-Quaker, anti-British elite is, uh, is basically voted out of office. They're thrown out of office in a more, for lack of a better term, progressive, more democratic, uh, more Republican government comes in in Pennsylvania. And it's in this background then that the convention, the Philadelphia Convention, takes place in the Pennsylvania State House. They take over the lower floor. Of course, we've been through all this. They, they write out the Constitution and then they send it out to the states uh, for ratification, the Congress of the United States does. In Pennsylvania, the legislature moves back downstairs again and uh, debates whether or not to have a convention or a, uh, how do we do this? What do we do? And in the meantime, of course, everybody's watching Delaware, which is not only moving to have a convention, but stacking that convention with 30 people that they know are gonna vote for ratification. That's not going to be possible in Pennsylvania, because as you look at the demographics of Pennsylvania, the eastern power elites, I guess the mercantile elites, are almost unanimously for the Constitution. In the western parts of the states, however, once you get past Harrison, Harrisburg, uh, there's less enthusiasm for the Constitution, less understanding of why we need this, I guess, is, is almost the attitude that's taken. And there's not the surety that there is in the eastern half of the state that they'll vote for ratification. And so the legislature hits on this idea and they, they assign this thing out by counties and they end up with basically 66 people in their, their delegation for their convention to ratify or not ratify the Constitution. Oddly enough, two-thirds two of them, 44, are pro-Constitution. Uh, 22 of them are not. And virtually every vote that's taken in the Pennsylvania ratification uh, debates, virtually every vote ends up 
roughly 44 to 22 over the next few weeks. It's, it's, it's eerie how this happens. There is, like Delaware, very little information about what was actually discussed in their convention. But unlike Delaware, it isn't because they just decided not to. They didn't write it down. They didn't bother. They didn't feel like they need to. In the case of Pennsylvania, the reasoning is much more uncomfortable. Let's put it that way. On November 12th of 1788, a man by the name of Ebenezer was sitting in his office in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. Ebenezer was a veteran of the American Revolutionary War. In fact, he was at Lexington and Concord. He was on Lexington Green when the first shots were fired. He has gone on to become a prominent uh, lawyer, and he is politically active. Ebenezer is pro-Constitution. He is a Federalist. Now, let me caveat everything I'm going to say from here on with one little thing. I'm going to use the terms Federalist and Anti-Federalists as we understand them today. In 1788, particularly in Pennsylvania, the terms were interchangeable and by turn in both insulting and supportive. And you, there, there was a, a much more fluid situation. So I'm using the term Federalist and Anti-Federalist as we understand them today. Okay? Also, same with Constitutionalist and Republican. They were interchangeable in Pennsylvania. It's, it's, it can be very confusing, and you have no idea how much it confused me late last night as I was finishing up the research for this, uh, but I was able to get it straightened out. Ebenezer is a Federalist. He is pro-Constitution. He is interested in making sure that his delegates from Wilkes-Barre and the people of Wilkes-Barre, because in Pennsylvania, unlike Delaware, where the delegates just vote their conscience, in Pennsylvania, it's much more the delegates are supposed to vote how their constituents feel. And he wants to make sure that the delegates from his area, Wilkes-Barre, that area of, of Pennsylvania, I have a map here, I can tell you the counties right offhand, if you want to wait a second, it's uh, Luzerne County. Northampton County, that area of Pennsylvania, he wants to make sure that they vote in favor of the Constitution. Of course, they're going to anyway, but he wants to make sure of that. And while we look at history with hindsight and certainty, in 1788, it wasn't particularly November, December 1788, it wasn't clear that this was going to happen because there were, as we already know, numerous anti-federalist arguments being put forth by anti-federalists around the country. And we've looked at some of these arguments. In some of these arguments, they are in fact correct about what they're saying. Moreover, some of those arguments, the counter arguments to are very, the Federalist arg counter arguments are very weak. It's as if the, the Federalists, for some reason, particularly in Pennsylvania, are inarticulate and unable to support their position. They're, they're really not able to counter some of these arguments in, in, a, in a cogent and convincing kind of way. Even the great James Wilson, who was a, a, a delegate to the convention and was there, and, and he makes that point, he is now, he's also a delegate to the Pennsylvania convention. He takes it upon himself is to remind people, look, I was there, I know why we are, we, we did this thing. And then he proceeds to lie about what they did. And he knows that it's a lie. He, he knows why they've done certain things and why they didn't do certain things at the convention. And yet his arguments, 
in some ways are so weak that the only thing he can do is change change the story. The Federalist position in Pennsylvania is is basically we don't really know what we're doing. We, we know what we want, but we can't really tell you why we want it other than it's good and positive and we want it because if we don't get it, well, disaster might ensue upon us. Ebenezer is sitting in his office on November 12th, 1788, when he is visited by a, a fellow local prominent politician there in Wilkes-Barre, a man by the name of Pickering, uh, Timothy Pickering, who has brought to Ebenezer a, a stack full of pamphlets, what we would call pamphlets. They were called broadsides in that day, but they were, they're pamphlets. They're four-page pamphlets, and they uh, are just distributed, printed, and distributed for people to read. And this is, it's kind of supplements a newspaper. The titles uh, are much different in that era. You know, today we like snappy, quick titles that, you know, really get like today's show is titled Pennsylvania and you know it's not it's not the debates in Pennsylvania that lead Dave to discover that uh, something in history is really going to bother him for a while we don't title things that way but this particular broadside was titled address to the citizens of Pennsylvania calculated to show the safety advantages and necessity of adopting the proposed Constitution of the United States in which we include answers to the objections that have been made to it. Well, Ebenezer, who, by the way, is a lawyer, uh, has read this pamphlet, and it's full of Federalist essays, and, of course, as it claims, uh, counter-arguments to anti-Federalist positions. He's concerned. The arguments he feels are so weak against the anti-Federalist position that his fear is that the people of Wilkes-Barre, who right now are leaning to ratification, they, they, they're mostly in favor of it. They've heard good things about it. They think it's good. People they trust are in favor of it. You know, Washington, Franklin, so forth and so on, Wilson. But Ebenezer is afraid that if they start reading these arguments, these counter-arguments, they'll recognize, because they're Americans, they're, they're smart people, he's afraid that they'll recognize the weakness of these arguments and the validity of the anti-federalist arguments against the Constitution. Do you follow what I'm saying here? And so Ebenezer hits upon a plan, and he actually writes in his journals about this plan and tells people what he's doing. That's how we know about it. Ebenezer decides, you know what? I just don't think the good people of Wilkes-Barre need to read these particular broadsides, these particular pamphlets, and so I'm just going to leave them in a drawer over here and make sure that nobody here ever reads them. Not because they're not good pamphlets, but because they, they might convince people that even though they're trying to say they're Federalists, they might convince people from the weak arguments that the Anti-Federalists have a point, and we can't have that. And so Ebenezer goes down in history as having suppressed, for all practical purposes, an anti-federalist position because he was afraid that it made too much sense and it wasn't what he wanted. And when I say history is strange, it doesn't give you what you want. I would conclude that little portion of the narrative by, by informing you that Ebenezer's last name is Bowman. And the answer to your question, your next question is, Yes. Meanwhile, in the rest of Pennsylvania, there is an ongoing effort 
to suppress the debate because even though the 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 delegation is basically two-thirds pro-constitution and one-third against it's that it's those 22 people led by a couple of guys by the name of smiley and finley who are uh, by the way part of that power elite that's been thrown out they are the anti-british anti-quaker minority that had ruled pennsylvania for so many years now they find themselves in the position of opposing the constitution on the grounds that in general in general it would prevent theoretically them from ever regaining power that's the theory there's some actual legitimate arguments that they have and of course the primary one is there's no bill of rights and wilson will spend much of his time arguing debating discussing the speeches that he that have come down to us that there is no need for a bill of rights in the constitution but in the meanwhile there is no motion in fact there is this there there are two motions made the first to open each session with prayer which is rejected roundly because again uh, we we have this religious diversity here in pennsylvania so who are you going to pick to give this prayer is it going to be a quaker well i'm not working under a quaker's prayer is it going to be a lutheran or presbyterian well i'm not working under that and so forth and so on and so not to mention the fact who's going to pay him which is the same argument they had at the constitution the convention the the reality of all this becomes very quickly that well we're not going to open this as a prayer because this diversity is going to work against that and so we can't do it the second motion is to record to write down all the debates and this is defeated this is no we don't want people writing down what we say the logic being that well we want to be able to speak freely and we don't want you know there to be recordings of what what we have said and or done because they might be used against us in the past in the future a local newspaper man by the name of dallas his last name is dallas decides that this is outrageous and he commissions someone to sit there and short take shorthand of all the meetings and then he decides to publish those each day in the local philadelphia newspaper there and so he begins to publish the debates as they're happening the debates are so long and he only has so much space so these debates in the newspaper there in philadelphia can actually spread a day can spread over three or four days of newspaper stuff and as the convention goes on and on and on people are buying the newspapers and reading what the anti-federalists particularly are saying in the convention and this causes believe it or not a huge crisis people start canceling their subscriptions to the newspaper because they're reading in the newspaper anti-federalists debates and positions and they don't want to hear this they want this constitution ratified and they're not going to sit still you think ebenezer bowman was unique no they're not going to sit still for the publishing of opinions that don't match theirs i laugh every time i hear a politician today say bitch we're never been more divided we've never been more partisan we've never been more biased we've never had to put up with the press the way anybody else the, the picking on nonsense any politician that says that doesn't know squat about american history in pennsylvania in november december of 1788 this man dallas was fired as the editor of the paper by the owner because he was running these verbatim reports of what was happening in the ratification convention and that included the anti-federalist position if he'd edited the anti-federalists out he'd have probably been fine but because he wanted to he wanted his readers to know everything that was happening he was fired 
as the editor of the paper. And that was it. We have no more verbatim, no more description of what happened in those debates than what bit we got up to the point where Dallas was fired. When you think about that in those terms, Federalist, Anti-Federalist, and you think about the debates and you think about the arguments that were happening here, you start to realize that history, again, will not give us what we want. It's strange. It makes you uncomfortable to think that the pro-Constitution people had to go to such lengths to suppress the counter-arguments in the presumption that in doing so, they would skew the vote to, to ratification to their advantage. Well, the minority, the 22 minority, of course, in Pennsylvania, did not sit well with this. And while they realized eventually that they were going to lose the debate, and it was obvious that uh, they were going to, <laughs> to lose this, and by December 12th of 1788, Pennsylvania will vote to ratify the Constitution, they felt it important enough that they published their dissent, why they were not supporting or what they wanted to see changed in the Constitution prior to ratification. They listed multiple items here, 14 things. We're only going to go through a few of them because I think uh, you can probably guess what most of them are. But their number one objection was that it didn't have a Bill of Rights. And because it did not have a Bill of Rights, it did not protect the right of conscience, meaning religion. The right of conscience shall be held inviolable, and neither the legislative, executive, nor judicial powers of the United States shall have authority to alter, abrogate, or infringe on any part of the Constitution of the several states, which provide for the preservation of liberty in matters of religion. Keep in mind, in Pennsylvania, this was a huge deal because up until two years ago, if you were a Quaker or anything other really than a Presbyterian, you couldn't vote at all in Pennsylvania. You couldn't hold office. And through the years, they had fought against that unfairness and that, that bias and had originally finally reached the point where, <laughs> okay, now we can... And we're going to make sure, even if we oppose the Constitution, we're going to make sure that the federal government can't do that. They wanted the trials by juries to, may, to remain in effect, especially between, in, in lawsuits between men and men, not just between the government and whomever, but between men and men. That there ought to not be excessive bail and that you have a right to demand the cause and nature of accusations, good counsel, so forth and so on that you had to have a warrant to do things, that the freedom of speech, of writing and publishing their sentiments, therefore the freedom of the press, shall not be restrained. Imagine that. The, the dissenters in Pennsylvania come to that conclusion after watching what has happened literally for the last several weeks where a man loses his job for publishing the very words that these people are trying to say. And a man named Ebenezer Bowman just put some pamphlets in a drawer because he doesn't want anybody to read them. That the people have the right to bear arms for the defense of themselves. Don't, don't argue to me that the Second Amendment wasn't understood to mean self-defense. The dissenters in Pennsylvania, part of the people who caused the Second Amendment to be written, made it clear that it was for their defense and for the defense of their state and the defense of the United States and for the purpose of killing game. No law shall be passed disarming the people or any of them unless you committed a crime 
or there was real danger of public injury from individuals. Hmm, interesting. The inhabitants of the several states shall have liberty to foul and hunt in seasonable times on the lands that they hold. No law shall be passed to restrain the legislatures from enacting laws for imposing taxes, except imposts and duties on goods. That the House of Representatives shall properly be increased in number and elections remain free. That the power of organizing, arming, and disciplining the militia remain with the individual states, and Congress have no authority to call or march out the militia of their own state without the consent of the state. That the legislative, executive, and judicial power shall be kept separate. That no treaty shall be directly opposed to the existing laws of the United States in Congress assembled. These were all of the, the arguments that the anti-federalists in Pennsylvania had, and you can see in them many of the concepts and ideas that will make their way into the Bill of Rights, which is what I keep reminding people. The Bill of Rights, perhaps the most venerated and beloved portion of the Constitution, was put into the Constitution by people who did not like the Constitution, didn't think it went far enough to protect liberties, despite James Wilson's arguments that it did. This background in Pennsylvania, where more and more people are you know, being suppressed, disenfranchised through the years, through the revolution, through the ideas of, 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 uh, of suppressing a religious majority, a political majority, a cultural majority, so that a, an elite minority can rule over it, is basically why the Constitution exists in the first place. And nowhere is that better seen than in Pennsylvania. And eventually, as I said, on December 12th, the vote will be held. And imagine this, it's a 44 to 22 vote, roughly, that votes to ratify the Constitution of the United States. Pennsylvania, therefore, becomes the second state. And eventually, within another week or so, within another couple, within several weeks, we're going to see two more states ratify as well as the dominoes begin to fall and people begin to get in line. What we see, however, in Pennsylvania is painful, isn't it? We don't like to think about the Federalists having to suppress arguments. It seems counterintuitive to the way the Constitution is supposed to work, doesn't it? It seems to run counter to everything we want it to be. Imagine, for just a moment, if you will, uh, me discovering that the man who was, let me see here, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven generations ago, my grandfather, or possibly my uncle. There's actually three different family trees out there that are a little skewed, and it's unclear. Two of them have him as my grandfather. One of them has me as, me, as my uncle. For my money, I think it's an uncle, but I'm not the expert in genealogy. But imagine discovering that one of your ancestors in 1788 was so pro-Constitution, which, which I am today, but he was willing to ignore, suppress, deny to people the counter-arguments against it that would help, perhaps, them decide whether they were for it or against it. History is strange. It will not give us what we want. And sometimes what we discover in history, the good, 
Ebenezer Bowman was at the Battle of Lexington. He was one of the youngest people there. Goes along with the bad. He was pro-Constitution, but he was so pro-Constitution that he didn't want you to hear the anti-Constitution debates. In Pennsylvania, the, the, the Federalists prevail, and they prevail quickly, and they prevail firmly. But it does leave us a little uncomfortable, doesn't it? That they, in essence, kind of cheated to get there, didn't they? It's a little... It's a little oogie. But as the rest of the states go on, the debates will become more and more intense and more and more realistic. And eventually, they'll get uh, pretty personal as we head through this whole debate. But for now, December 12th, 1788... Pennsylvania becomes the second state to ratify the Constitution of the United States. Constitution Thursday is a feature segment on Plausibly Live, the official podcast of The Dave Bowman Show, a Slippery Fish Entertainment production for the Podcast 99 Network, copyright MMXV, all rights reserved. For more information, log on to constitutionthursday.com.